Christians um, will sometimes debate the purpose or the value of even having special holiday celebrations. There are certain Christians who believe that the only holiday that the New Testament commands of us to observe would be Sunday morning worship. The, uh, and, and that's fine. Paul says some consider one day more meaningful than others. Some considers all days alike. And he leaves that up to our conscience. So there's nothing wrong with that. But I would argue for Christians who choose to celebrate Christian holidays, I find it extremely important if we're going to be consistent to make a big deal out of Good Friday. It amazes me how many Christians and how many different churches I know of that don't have Good Friday services yet, they will do Advent and Christmas. And they will celebrate Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. And so here's what we've essentially decided to do. We've decided to turn the incarnation, the birth of Christ, into a special celebration, which we should. If Jesus does not take on flesh and is not born of a virgin then we are dead in our sins. So we've made Christmas a big deal. And then we make Easter a big deal. The resurrection of Christ, conquering death. Paul says if Christ has not raised, then we are dead in our sins. And we should make that a big deal. So how is it possible that we make the incarnation a holiday and we celebrate it in church? And then we make the resurrection a holiday and we celebrate it in church. But the important event that links those two events, we don't make a holiday out of it. We celebrate Christmas because of the importance of the incarnation. We celebrate Easter because of the importance of the resurrection. And so I would say it is fitting and appropriate that we make Good Friday an important service. We understand what links the incarnation and the resurrection together is the death of Christ. And so that is what we have come here to do. We are gathering around the word of God to remember the death of Jesus Christ. And so I would encourage you, if we were here together having a service, this would be a very solemn time. A time of great reverence and seriousness. And that is because what we are essentially doing right now is a funeral service. I saw a lot of links. I didn't watch the videos, but there's a lot of links going around on my social media today. And the title of the video was... Uh, Today is Good Friday, but don't worry, Sunday is coming. And that's a great way to live in the day. But this service, that's not our mentality. We are not focusing on Sunday. We are not anticipating Sunday. We are simply taking a moment to think about this this crucial event in human history, the death of Jesus Christ. We are focusing on Jesus' death. Now, when we look at the death of Jesus, when we look at the cross of Christ, what we're actually studying, what we're actually thinking about, whether we know it or not, are what we call, is what we call the atonement. Jesus died, and the, the Bible indicates this as being an atonement. 
And that word atonement, it has a long history of meaning, but it essentially means to make right. The cross is how Jesus made us right with God. It's how Jesus made us right with God. And so throughout church history, you will find, unfortunately, many different theories of atonement. You, you can read, if you were to do a, a class in church history, you would actually see competing atonement theories. Theories of the atonement. Now, uh, today we are not going to look at all of those and do a comprehensive look. Some of them are outlandish. Some of them are very hard to understand. Some of them are hard to differ differentiate between others. It sounds like these two things are saying the same thing. What you need to know is that there are many views of the atonement that are unbiblical, offensive, and, and as I said, outlandish. But one of the main problems with the other subset of atonement theories is that they're incomplete. In other words, when the scriptures talk about the death of Jesus, what we're going to look at tonight is they talk about one ultimate purpose, but there are other things that are simultaneously true. So some of the atonement theories are true, they're just lacking. And so we are going to look at three different atonement theories that are all biblical and are all true. Three different things we understand about why Jesus Christ died. Why did he do that? And, and how do we interpret that event? Well, we're going to look at three very important ones. So let's begin with the first one. If you would turn, I hope you have your Bibles with you. If you would turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says something very interesting about the cross in 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at verse 21 of chapter 2. Uh, by the way, the context of this, Peter just got done telling us to submit to our governing authorities. And then he's now talking about persecution and how Christians endure persecution. And look at what he says beginning in verse 21. Speaking of enduring persecution righteously... Peter says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So Peter here is definitely alluding to the cross. He's alluding to the resurrection, although many of the, what he said would apply to almost all of the sufferings of Jesus' life. But what Peter is focusing in here is the death of Jesus Christ, his betrayal, his arrest, him, the way he was silenced before his accusers and ultimately his death. And Peter says that he committed no sin and there was no deceit in his mouth. He was reviled, but he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him and judges justly. But he told us in verse 21 that why did Christ do all of this? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So one of the first 
atonement theories that we see, one, of the, one thing that's true about the cross of Christ is Jesus died to leave us an ultimate example of obedience to God and righteousness. The death of Christ is, in, is a moral example. Peter says he did this to leave you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So we as Christians learn how we are to treat people who persecute us. How do we handle persecution? Well, how did Jesus handle it? And as a matter of fact, this was a big deal to the ancient church, the early church, the church of the first two centuries, because they were under a great deal of persecution, so they had to cling to this constantly. And, and this is one of the reasons why the, 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 uh, the universal position of the early church and through most of church history was a position we call pacifism. And pacifism is a Christian belief, well, I wouldn't call it Christian, but it's a belief that says we are to never, ever, ever be violent toward another person under any circumstance. Pacifism would say all war is unjust, all violence is unjust, even violence if you're defending yourself or defending somebody else. Now, I think that this is... Uh, pacifism is not biblical. I think it ignores the whole counsel of Scripture. But the reason the early church went there is because they were under so much persecution and they were constantly clinging to this understanding of the cross. That how did Jesus respond to violence? He was not violent. How did Jesus respond when he was betrayed and sinned against and hurt? He responded by not sinning, by not lying, by not reviling in return. Jesus loved his persecutors, prayed for the forgiveness of his persecutors. And so the cross leaves us with this beautiful example of how you should treat people who hate you and persecute you. Treat them as Jesus did. Respond with love, with peace, with gentleness. This is related to an atonement theory that is known as the moral exemplar. Now, we need to qualify it, though, because the moral exemplar has evolved throughout church history, and it is no longer something I would consider biblical. Essentially, what the moral exemplar theory of the atonement has become is it's become a way to sort of strip the cross of Christ, to strip the ministry of Jesus of all theological significance, and just turn people into moralists. People who hold to the moral exemplar today basically want to gut the Bible of all theology and just simply say, Jesus was a great moral man and he came to make people follow in his footsteps and he came to change society. So generally speaking, the moral exemplar is not a true atonement theory, but there is a kernel of truth in there in that Peter is very clear one of the reasons Jesus died was to leave us the ultimate example of surrender and sacrifice and trusting ourselves to God. That we trust God even when we're persecuted. We trust God even when things aren't going well. We trust him and we refuse to sin and we refuse to lash out. So the cross provides a moral example for us. And that is true of scripture, but it's not all that we have to say about the cross. And that's the key. For example, there's another atonement theory that was extremely popular in the early church. And it's known as Christus Victor, which means Christ the victor. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Notice how the author of Hebrews describes the death of Christ in Hebrews chapter 2. He 
Hebrews chapter 2, look at verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So how does the Bible talk about the cross, the death of Christ? Another true thing we saw, one true atonement theory is that it's a moral example. And the second thing we see is this idea of Christus Victor. That the death of Christ was how Christ fought his fight. It was a weapon. And he used his own death to conquer Satan and to conquer death itself. And so the Christus Victor view really can't be separated from the resurrection. But it's because Jesus died for sins and rose again, what does Hebrews chapter 2 says? What was the results of that? He destroyed the devil, and the, and the devil is the one who has power over death. So Christus victor, this idea that Christ is victor, that Christ is conqueror, this is true. By dying for his people and rising from the dead, Jesus did, in fact, conquer sin and death. He conquered it. He, he, he came out of the tomb victorious. His death, but remember the text here, even though the, the, the resurrection is certainly implied here, it doesn't talk about the resurrection. It simply mentions the death. And it was the death of Christ, the text says, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So what was the purpose of the cross? It was to destroy the devil. We see in 1 John. 1 John says that Jesus came, the reason he came into the world was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to be victorious over sin, to be victorious over Satan, to be victorious over death. Jesus tells his own parable of when he came into the world, he came to bind up the strong man, that is Satan. He came to bind Satan, to, to destroy the power that Satan holds over people, to destroy the power that Satan has over the world, and to reclaim his authority, to reclaim his dominion. So the death of Christ is absolutely conquer. It is, it is Jesus' victory. As a matter of fact, by the way, we're going to be bouncing around all night tonight. This is a topical sermon. If you'll turn to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. Speaking of Jesus and his death, and we'll prove that in just a moment. You just have to take my word for it for a second. Speaking of Jesus and his death, how does Colossians, how does Paul describe it in verse 15? He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities, which by the way is often a reference to demonic powers and demonic forces. So Jesus disarmed Satan and his demons. He disarmed the evil forces that had authority and grip on the world. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I guess actually really this is really speaking of God triumphing over them through Christ. But again, still the point is, is you get this language of victory and triumph and conquer. So is Christus victor true? Yes, it is. The death of Christ was most assuredly a victorious conquering. 
So is Jesus' death a moral example? Yes, it is. Is Jesus' death a victory over Satan, over evil, over death, over sin? Yes, it is. But again, all of these things, we cannot make them compete with what I would argue is the most important reason for Jesus' crucifixion. This third and final atonement theory we're going to look at, this is the capstone atonement theory. This is the primary reason that Jesus came to earth. This was the ultimate purpose of the cross. These other things, I would argue, are actually just accidents to this ultimate purpose. And it is known as penal substitution. Penal substitution. In other words, penal is penalty, that's judicial language, that's courtroom language. And substitution, uh, someone who stands in our place, who, who substitutes in for you. So penal substitution, atonement, what does that mean? It means that God's people, the people of God, had a penalty. They had a debt that they owed. They had justice that was owed to them. And Jesus tagged them out and substituted himself. And he took that penalty. He took that payment. Jesus received the, pen the penalty that we deserved when he became our substitute. So penal substitution sees the cross as the wrath of God being poured out on the Son of God and Jesus bearing our sins, paying for our sins, and that provides the foundation for why we can be forgiven because our sins have been justly dealt with. Now before we look at the scriptural proof of this, I want you just first and foremost to understand that while I am claiming that this is the most important reason for the cross, it therefore makes sense to me then that this would be the most attacked atonement theory of all of them, because it is. You will find theologians all over the place who will ridicule and attack this atonement theory. They will describe it as a pagan atonement theory wherein the, the pagan God is forced to require child sacrifice in order for his, his, his temper to be appeased. You will hear people say things like, God is not a bloodthirsty God who needs a child sacrifice to forgive you. He can just forgive you without the child sacrifice. You will even hear people make a claim, which astonishes me because this is not true. They will even make claims like penal substitution was invented in the Reformation. It was first ever put forward by John Calvin. That you can't find it in church history. The claim is that penal substitution is pagan, that it's violent, and that it's new. But I would argue that not only is it traceable to the very teaching of the New Testament and even earlier in the Old Testament with the sacrificial system which we will look at, but I would argue that it is not just new and pagan, it is actually the primary reason Jesus died. This is the most important purpose of the cross. You opened your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, and this is what's so important. We talked about the cross being Jesus' conquer and victory, but the question is how? How did losing actually be winning? How did the death of Christ conquer anything? You see, penal substitution is actually the engine that makes Christus' victor work. Because well, we already established in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, that Christus' victor is true. But look at what it says right before that. Look at verse 13. 
And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, speaking of Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So you have sins. You have a a, a debt against a holy God. And God, for all those who are in Christ, has forgiven them of their sins. Now, did God just forgive them out of no? Did he just say, yeah, you know, I forgive you? He doesn't require payment, doesn't require justice, because that would make him a pagan God, right? He just forgave us. That's it. Just washed his hands of it, right? No, we are forgiven of our sins, of our trespasses, verse 13, having forgiven us of our trespasses. And then verse 14, the sentence continues and tells us how. How is it that God forgave you? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So we see the the, the courtroom language there. This is judicial language. We had a debt and it carried legal demands. We owed a debt to God and it would have been unjust for God to just ignore that. So no, he can't just forgive you. You have sinned and broken the most holy law and have offended the most holy being in all of creation. We can't just let that go. God has to cancel it. Someone has to pay it. So how does that happen? Look at verse 14. By canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside what? Nailing it to the cross. How did God forgive your sins? Because he nailed your sins to a cross. That's how the record of debt with its legal demands, that's how it was forgiven. That's how it's exonerated. That's how you get to heaven. You need your sins to be put on Jesus and then Jesus needs to be nailed to the cross. And then verse 15, that's how God has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to overshame by triumphing over them. How did he triumph over his enemies? By sending his son to pay for sins and conquer death in the resurrection. Christus victor makes no sense without penal substitution. Penal substitution is the process whereby Jesus takes your sins and he becomes your substitute. He carries them. He says, I will be accountable for them. And God nails your sins to the cross with him. But the difference is when your sins are nailed to the cross and buried in that grave, they don't come out with Jesus when he does. Your sins are still buried in a grave somewhere. That is how God has forgiven you, and it's by forgiving you that he has conquered his demonic enemies. But what's interesting is this this, this is the verse, verse 15, we use to prove Christ is victor, but we see that it also proves penal substitution. And guess what's awesome? The same thing we see in in 1 Peter takes place. So go back to the verse in 1 Peter that we looked at. 1 Peter chapter 2, this is where we saw the moral example, atonement theory of the cross, Go back to verse 23. This is the end of the moral example. Peter says this. When he was reviled, just chapter 2, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges judgely. So we read that already. That's, that's the moral example. But then look at what Peter goes on to say in the very, the very next verse. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. 
For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The very passage that, yes, it established, of course, the cross of Christ is an example. The life of Christ is an example, and we should follow that example. But Peter immediately goes into penal substitution. What was the ultimate purpose of the cross? That Jesus would bear your sins in his body. That he would be your substitute. That he would say, okay, I will take your sins, and, and you can put them on me. He bore your sins in his body, and then his body was nailed on the tree, and then that is why Peter can say, by his wounds you have been healed. And you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Again, that's atonement, being made right. We have now been brought back into right relationship with our ultimate pastor, our ultimate shepherd, God the Father himself. And how is it that we have been made right with God? Because Jesus bore your sins in his body on that tree. Because Jesus died the death that you deserved. And here's the best part of all of this. These are not Peter's words. Peter didn't make these words up. Isaiah did. This is exactly what the prophet Isaiah said was the purpose of the crucifixion hundreds of years before it happened. Turn to that famous passage, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, one of the most well-known Old Testament passages because of the clarity that it speaks and prophesies of the resurrection, or forgive me, of the, the crucifixion. Isaiah chapter 53. Let's begin in verse 5. 1 through 4 is clearly prophesying of Jesus Christ and his ministry wherein he would be rejected by men even though he was healing the sick, performing miracles. And then look at what Isaiah prophesies. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So how does, what does Isaiah say is the primary purpose of the death of Christ? To just be this moral example so we can all be good people? Does he say that he was pierced to conquer Satan? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Quote, and this is what Peter quotes. And by his wounds you are healed. You were only made right because of his wounds. And then look at what he goes on to say, that we are like sheep have gone astray, we have turned our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The sins of God's people were put on Christ. They were laid on him, he bore them in his body, and they were nailed to the tree with him. And Isaiah continues, this entire chapter is beautiful, but look at verses 10 through 12. Remember, our, our, our hypothetical, well, they're, they're real, but our detractors had the, the gall, the audacity to call this a pagan god who requires child sacrifice. Well, apparently Isaiah doesn't think so because look at how Isaiah describes the sacrifice of Christ in verse 10. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Some of your translations actually say that it pleased the Lord to crush him. 
You see, Isaiah is not embarrassed. He's not ashamed. He doesn't think it's pagan to affirm the truth that it was God's will to crush Jesus. And it was actually God himself who has put him to grief. It is God who crushed Jesus. It was God who put Jesus to grief. God was pouring out the wrath of sin on Jesus in our place. Penal substitution. He continues, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Why did Jesus die? To bear your sins. To pay the price for your sins that you do not want to pay. But I want us to conclude understanding penal substitution by looking at a lengthy passage in Hebrews chapter 9. Turn, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 9, and we will conclude here. Because what we need to understand, if you get rid of penal substitution, you have lost Christ in the Old Testament. The entire Old Testament system of ritual sacrifices were all pointing toward penal substitution. Not moral exemplar, not Christus Victor, not one of the other 14 atonement theories, but to the idea that we need a sacrifice to be punished in our place. That's what the entire Old Testament sacrificial system was. And if that's not what Christ came to do, then Christ and the Old Testament don't fit together. When Jesus first shows up on the scene, how does John the Baptist announce Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You want to know why he called Jesus a lamb? Because he was Jewish. Because he was speaking to a Jewish community under the Old Testament sacrificial system and they understood what an unblemished lamb was used for. And the unblemished lamb was used to be put into the Holy of Holies, slaughtered as a substitute to make appeasement for the sins of the people. And so when Jesus shows up, John says, there's your lamb. There's your sacrifice. You want your sins to be dealt with? You can go to hell and deal with them yourself, or you can let the lamb of God bear your sins. And he can die in your place. And so all of Hebrews is showing us how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And in Hebrews chapter 9, we see how Jesus is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. And it goes into chapter 10. But look at verses 11 through 14 with me. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come... Then through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation... He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling 
of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So the author of Hebrews here is, is, is connecting Christ as the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. And here's his first point. Jesus entered a tabernacle greater than the one that was built on earth, heaven. He entered a holy of holies far more holy than the holy of holies in the temple, heaven. And how did Jesus enter there? He entered there because only the high priest was allowed in the Holy of Holies. And Jesus came as our high priest. So Jesus is the perfect high priest who enters into the heavenly tabernacle, into the heavenly Holy of Holies. But we know that when the high priest goes into the tabernacle, he has to have a sacrifice. And Jesus brings a sacrifice with him, but it's not of bulls and goats and lambs. It's his own Jesus enters into heaven by the way of his own blood, his own sacrifice, and the text tells us that it's because of his blood that he has secured eternal redemption. He has redeemed us and purified us by his blood in a way that animals and goats and lambs and calves could never do. It's a better sacrifice. But again, what's the point? The sacrifice is what's cleansing you. God doesn't just forgive you. It's through the sacrifice that you are made clean. It's through the blood that you are redeemed. We continue in verse 15. Therefore, Jesus, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So how are you redeemed from your former sins? How do you get into the new covenant of grace and forgiveness? A death has to occur. So our detractors of penal substitution are just wrong. There is no forgiveness without death. He continues this idea of how the, the covenants have to be inaugurated with blood. And look at what he goes on to say in verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Does this now sound like just a, a pagan theory borrowed from pagan religions? Is this just a pagan God who requires child sacrifice to be appeased, or do we see explicitly in the text, no blood, no forgiveness? No death, no forgiveness. No cross, no reconciliation. If Jesus doesn't die on a cross, there's no atonement to be made. And we are dead in our sins. Verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with the better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into a holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not of his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. 
You see how penal substitution fits with the old? You see how the reason we are redeemed, the reason we are forgiven is because as the text says, Jesus bore our sins. He stood in our place. He offered himself. Jesus laid down his life. And he absorbed the wrath of God on a cross. And he did so while bearing the sins of his people. Bearing the sins of the many. You see, penal substitution is not a pagan, stolen from pagan rituals and pagan religions. They stole it from us. But they practiced it wickedly. And they practice it by taking human sacrifices, which cannot actually save, not pure unblemished sacrifices, but they took unwilling, innocent sacrifices and they murdered people. But how does the Bible present it? Jesus willingly lays himself down. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus agrees. His will is in perfect harmony with the Father. It is out of love that God sent his son, John 3, 16, not out of anger and hatred like the pagan deities. God so loved the world that he sent his son, and the text tells us that the son was not dragged against his will. But father sends the son, and the son is in perfect alignment with the father's will. Me and the father are one, Jesus says. And so Jesus willingly agrees with the father, lays down his life in obedience obeys the Father's will, agrees with the Father's will, and takes your sins upon himself. And then he absorbs the wrath that your sins have stored up. And so I would encourage everyone who's watching this to know this. This is the most important thing you will ever hear. And it's not because I'm important. This is the most important thing you will ever hear. You have sinned against a holy God. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. He is just, and he will not just wink at it and sweep it under the rug. You have sinned against a holy God. You have broken the most righteous, holy law that has ever existed and offended the most holy God. And he must be just in dealing with your sin. However, he has provided a way for him to be just and the justifier, as Romans says. How is it that God can be both just and justifier? How can he justify you? How can he save you? How can he forgive you when you deserve wrath? You deserve punishment. Well, he has given us a substitute. He has given us someone who can, who can intrinsically, spiritually, take our sins upon himself. He can say, I will take them. I will bear them. I will pay for them. And your sins can be laid on him. He can bear your sins. He can bear your iniquities. And he takes it to the cross. And your sins are nailed in that cross. And then they're buried there forever. Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not count his sin. Jesus can pay for your sins by his once for all sacrifice. He is the holy, unblemished Lamb of God who enters into the holy place by the blood of his own sacrifice which perfectly and permanently puts away sin forever. And the Bible says that the way you partake of that sacrifice is by coming to Christ in faith. 
There's not a list of religious ordinances you have to jump through. There's not a system of works that you have to do perfectly. You simply come to Christ. You turn from your sins. You repent from your sins. You repent from your false religion. You repent from everything that you think is true. And you now turn and confess and admit that you are a sinner. And you come to Christ with the empty hand of faith. And you say, Jesus, take my sins from me. Forgive me. And that's all the Lord requires. You come to Christ by faith. You put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you will be made right with God the Father. You will return to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. You who are a sheep who has gone wandering, each and every one of us, we have all turned our own way, but you can come back, you can be brought back to God. The prodigal returning to the Father. But it only comes through Christ. It only comes through the perfect sacrifice of Christ. You need His blood. So, does the death of Christ provide us a moral example of how to obey God and live righteously and love our enemies? Yes, it does. Does the death of Christ prove that Jesus is a reigning king, a conquering warrior, a victor over his enemies? Yes, it does. But the primary purpose of the cross was to bear the sins of the world, was to forgive the people of God to make an atonement so that we can return to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one gets to the Father but through him. You come to Christ, you're covered in his blood, you're forgiven, and you will spend all eternity with God the Father. That is the message of the cross, and that is what we remember today. It was a horrible moment. It was bloody and terrible. It was, uh, consider this, uh, the night that Jesus was betrayed, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Luke says that he was so nervous, he was sweating, and the sweat was heavy like blood, right? Sometimes when you're sweaty, you know, it just, just kind of, you know, just is on your forehead. No, Jesus was sweating, it was literally rolling down his face, the way blood rolls and pours down. Jesus is sweat was heavy and it was pouring and he was prostrate on the ground and he was begging God to take the cup of wrath from him. So here's what the cross is. The cross is something so horrible and so terrible that it brought a holy God to his knees in fear. It was a horrible event. But Jesus willingly took it on, obeying the Father's will because of their love for you. So return to the loving God. Come to the God who loves his people so much that he would make a way for them to be saved even at the cost of his own son's life. Hear the Father beckon. Feel the Spirit. And come to Christ by faith and you shall be forgiven. Pray with us. Father in heaven, I do pray for anyone who might be hearing these words that is not in right relationship with you, that has turned their own way and has wandered. Father, I pray the Spirit would work mightily in their hearts right now, that they would hear the voice of their shepherd calling them, that they would feel the weight of their sin, that they would be convicted of just how sinful 
They are. And I feel that you would comfort them by showing them and bringing them to the only one who can remove that guilt, who can remove that shame, who can remove what they owe against God. The perfect Son of God, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross so that we might be forgiven. I pray for anyone listening to this who doesn't know you, God, that they would come to Christ by faith and they would enter into right relationship with you that their sins would be washed away and buried in a tomb so that they might now live for you. And I pray for everyone who is in right, right relationship with you hearing these words, God, that we would be reminded of just how much you love us. That we, we would be reminded that salvation is free for us, but it was not free. That we would be reminded of what great a cost we were and yet, out of your great love for us, it was a cost worth paying. You loved your people so much that you would send your son into the world to die. A sinner's death. May we be overwhelmed tonight by your love. In the midst of difficult and trying circumstances that we're living in right now, God, I would call us to remember that when we remember what you have done, what on earth could possibly get us down? Why would we be discouraged? We're covered in the blood. Why would we be fearful? Our sins have been forgiven. Why would we be depressed and discouraged? We have a high priest who stands before you on our behalf. Why would we be frustrated and angry, God? You love us and we're in right relationship with you. You can take the world, but give us Jesus and we will have all we could ever need. He is enough for us, God. And I pray we would remember that on this Good Friday. That he is more than enough. He's all we could ever need, all we could ever want, all we could ever hope for. You've been good to us, God. You have been gracious and loving and merciful to us in many ways. But the primary way we see your love is when we look to the cross. So may we see your love there. May we find our forgiveness at the foot of the cross. May we cherish you and cherish your son in all our ways in light of what he's done. We love you, we thank you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.